Saint Bartholomew's Eve by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Christensen. Chapter Five, Taking the Field. A guide thoroughly acquainted with the country rode ahead of the party, carrying a lantern fixed at the back of his saddle. They had, after leaving the chateau, begun to mount the lofty range of hills behind. The road crossing these was a mere track, and they were glad when they began to send on the other side. They crossed the Clane River some ten miles above Poitiers. A few miles farther forded the Vienne, crossed the Garden Pay at a bridge at the village of Montmorillon, and an hour later halted in a wood, just as daylight was breaking, having ridden nearly fifty miles since leaving the chateau. So far they had kept to the south of the direct course in order to cross the rivers near their sources. Every man carried provisions for himself and his horse, and as soon as they had partaken of a hearty meal, the armor was unstrapped, and all threw themselves down for a long sleep, sentries being first placed, with orders to seize any peasants who might enter the wood to gather fuel. With the exception of the sentries, who were changed every hour, the rest slept until late in the afternoon, when the horses were again fed and groomed, and another meal was eaten. At sunset the armor was buckled on again, and they started. They crossed the Creuse at the bridge of Argento about midnight, and riding through La Chatre, halted before morning in a wood two miles from saint Amon. Here the day was passed as the previous one had been. "'Tell me, Francois,' Philip said, as they were waiting for the sun to go down. "'Something about your cousin, de la Nuit. As we are to ride with him, it is well to know something about him. Uh, how old is he?' He is thirty-six, and there is no braver gentleman in France. As you know, he is of a Breton family, one of the most illustrious of the province. He is connected with the great houses of Chateaubriand and Matignon. As a boy, he was famous for the vigor and strength that he showed in warlike exercises, but was, in other respects, I have heard, of an indolent disposition, and showed no taste for reading or books of any kind. As usual among the sons of noble families, he went up to the court of Henry the Second as a page, and when there became seized with an ardor for study, especially that of ancient and modern writers who treated on military subjects. As soon as he reached manhood, he joined the army in Piedmont under Marshal de Prisac, that being the best military school of the time. On his return, he showed the singular and affectionate kindness of his nature. His mother, unfortunately, while he was away, had become infected with the spirit of gambling, and the king, who had noted the talent and kind disposition of the young page, thought to do him a service by preventing his mother squandering the estates in play. He therefore took the management of our affairs entirely out of her hands, appointing a royal officer to look after them. Now most young men would have rejoiced at becoming masters of their estates, but the first thing that Francois did on his return was to go to the king, and solicit as a personal favor that his mother should be reinstated in the management of her estates. This was granted, but a short time afterward she died. De La Nuit retired from court, and settled in Brittany upon his estates, which were extensive. Shortly afterwards, D'Andelo, Coligny's brother, who was about to espouse Mademoiselle de Rolle, the richest heiress in Brittany, paid a visit there. He had lately embraced our faith, and was bent upon bringing over others to it, and he brought down with him to Brittany a famous preacher named Cormel. His preaching in the chateau attracted large numbers of the people, and although Brittany is perhaps the most Catholic province in France, he made many converts. Among these was de la Nuit, then twenty-seven years old. 
recognizing his talent and influence dandolo had made special efforts to induce him to join the ranks of the huguenots and succeeded my cousin who previous to that had i believe no special religious views became a firm huguenot as you might expect from such a man he is in no way a fanatic and holds to the views that we learn from the preachers of geneva he is a staunch huguenot but he is gentle courtly and polished and has i believe the regard of men of both parties he is a personal friend of the guises and was appointed by them as one of the group of nobles who accompanied mary stuart to scotland when the war broke out in fifteen sixty two after the massacre of vassy he joined the standard of conde he fought at Drou and distinguished himself by assisting the admiral to draw off our beaten army in good order the assassination of francois de guise as you know put an end to that war de la noue bitterly regretted the death of guise and after peace was made retired to his estates in brittany where he has lived quietly for the last four years i have seen him several times because he has other estates in potou within a day's ride of us i have never seen a man i admire so much he is all for peace though he is a distinguished soldier while deeply religious he has yet the manners of a noble of the court party he has no pride and he is loved by the poor as well as by the rich he would have done anything to have avoided war but you will see that now the war has begun he will be one of our foremost leaders i can tell you philip i consider myself fortunate indeed that i am going to ride in the train of so brave and accomplished a gentleman during the day they learned from a peasant of a ford crossing the Chur, two or three miles below st amon entering a village near the crossing place they found a peasant who was willing for a reward to guide them across the country to, to briere on the loire their first guide had returned from their first halting place and the peasant being placed on a horse behind a man-at-arms took the lead their pace was much slower than it had been the night before and it was almost daybreak when they passed the bridge at briere having ridden over forty miles they rode two or three miles into the mountains after crossing the loire and then halted we must give the horses twenty-four hours here francois said i don't think it is above twenty miles on to chatillon sur lyon but it is all through the hills and it is of no use arriving there with the horses so knocked up as to be useless for service we have done three tremendous marches and anyhow we shall be there long before the majority of the parties from the west and south can arrive the admiral and conde will no doubt be able to gather sufficient strength from champagne and the north of burgundy for his purpose of taking the court by surprise i am afraid there is but little chance of their succeeding though it is hardly possible that so many parties of huguenots can have been crossing the country in all directions to the admirals without an alarm being given meaux is some sixty miles from chatillon and if the court get the news only three or four hours before conde arrives there they will be able to get to paris before he can cut them off in fact even while they were speaking the court was in safety the huguenots of champagne had their rendezvous at rossoy a little more than twenty miles from meaux and they began to arrive there in the afternoon of the twenty eighth the prince of conde who was awaiting them feeling sure that the news of the movement must in a few hours at any rate be known at meaux marched for lagnay on the marne established himself there late in the evening and seized the bridge the news however had as he feared already reached the court and the messages had been dispatched in all haste to order up six thousand swiss troops who were stationed at chateau thierry thirty miles higher up on the marne during the hours that elapsed before their arrival the court was in a state of abject alarm but at one o'clock the swiss arrived and two hours later the court set out under their protection for paris the prince of conde who had with him but some four hundred gentlemen 
for the most part armed only with swords, met the force as it passed by Lognay. He engaged in a slight skirmish with it, but being unable with his light-armed followers to effect anything against the solid body of the Swiss mountaineers, armed with their long pikes, he fell back to await reinforcements, and the court reached Paris in safety. A messenger had arrived at Chatillon with the news when Francois and Philip rode in. The castle gate stood open. Numbers of Huguenot gentlemen were standing in excited groups discussing the news. "'Ah, there is my cousin de la Nuit!' Francois exclaimed as he alighted from his horse. "'This is good fortune. I was wondering what we should do if we did not find him here.' And he made his way to where a singularly handsome gentleman was talking with several others. "'Ah, Francois, is that you?' well arrived indeed gentlemen this is my cousin and namesake francois de la ville he has ridden across france to join us is that your troop francois entering the gate now ah yes i see your banner by my faith it is the best accoutred body we have seen yet they make a brave show with their armour and lances the countess has indeed shown her good will right worthily and it is no small credit to you that you should have brought them from across the other side of potu and yet have arrived here before many who live within a few leagues of the castle. And who is this young gentleman with you? It is my cousin, Philip Fletcher, son of my mother's sister, Lucie. I spoke to you of his coming to us when we were at La Ville three months since. He has come over in order that he may venture his life on behalf of our religion and family. I am glad to welcome you, young sir. We are, you see, connections— I being Francois's first cousin on his father's side, and you on that of his mother. Your spirit in coming over here shows that you inherit the bravery of your mother's race, and I doubt not that we shall find that the mixture with the sturdy stock of England will have added to its qualities. Would that your queen would but take her proper place as head of a league of the Protestants of Europe. Our cause would then be well-nigh won without the need of striking a blow. Is it true, cousin, that the court has escaped to Paris? Yes, I would that Condé had had but a few hours longer before they took the alarm. Another day and he would have had such a gathering as it would have puzzled the Swiss to have got through. His forces were double yesterday, and eight hundred have ridden forth from here this morning to join him. I myself, though I made all speed, arrived but two hours since, and shall with all who come in this evening ride forward tomorrow. The Admiral and his brother, the Cardinal of Chatillon, will go with us. D'Andelot is already with Condé. Now, as your troop is to ride with mine, I will see that they are disposed for the night together, and that their wants are attended to. My men have picketed their horses just outside the castle moat, for, as you see, we are crowded here with gentlemen and their personal followers, and it would be impossible to make room for all. I will take your officer to the seneschal, who will see that your men are provided with bread, meat, and wine. Ah, Captain Montpace, you are in the command of the troop, I see. I thought the Countess would send so experienced a soldier with them, and I am proud to have such a well-appointed troop behind me. None so well-armed and orderly have yet arrived. My own at present are forty strong, and have, like you, made their way across France from Poitou. I could not bring my Bretons, he said, turning to Francois. The Huguenots there are but a handful among the Catholics. Happily on my estates they are good friends together, but I could not call away my men from their homes at a time like this. Now, Captain Montpace, I will show you where your men are to bivouac, next to my own. Then, if you'll come with me to the seneschal, rations shall be served out to them. Are your horses fit for another journey? They will be by tomorrow morning, Count. 
They have only come from this side of Briere this morning, but though the journey is not long, the road is heavy. They had twenty-four hours' rest before that, which they needed sorely, having travelled from Laville in three days. Draw a good supply of forage for them from the magazines, de la Nuit said. See that the saddlebags are well filled in the morning. There is another heavy day's work before them, and then they can take a good rest. Francois and Philip accompanied the troop, and waited until they saw that they were supplied with provisions and forage, and with straw for lying down on. Then they re-entered the castle. De la Nuit presented them to many of his friends, and then took them to the admiral. He quite fulfilled the anticipations that Philip had formed of him. He was a tall figure, with a grave but kindly face. He was dressed entirely in black, with puffed trunks, doublet to match, and a large turn-down collar. As was usual, he wore over his shoulders a loose jacket with a very high collar, the empty sleeves hanging down on either side. When riding, the arms were thrust into these. He wore a low, soft cap, with a narrow brim all around. The expression on his face, with its short, pointed beard, mustache, and closely trimmed whiskers, was melancholy. The greatest captain of his age, he was more reluctant than any of his followers to enter upon civil war, and the fact that he felt that it was absolutely necessary to save Protestantism from being extinguished in blood in no way reconciled him to it. He received Francois and his cousin kindly. "'I am glad,' he said to the former, "'to see the representative of the Levilles here. Your father was a dear friend of mine, and fell fighting bravely by my side. I should have been glad to have had you riding among my friends, but it is better still for you to be with your cousin, de la Nuit, who is far more suitable as a leader and guide for youth than I am. You can follow no better example. I am glad also, he said, turning to Philip, to have another representative of the old family of the de Mouly here, and to find that though transplanted to England, it still retains its affection for France. I trust that ere long I may have many of your countrymen fighting by my side. We have the same interests, and if the Protestant nations would unite, the demand for the right of all men, Catholic and Protestant, to worship according to their conscience could no longer be denied. I regret that your queen does not permit free and open worship to her Catholic subjects, since her not doing so affords some sort of excuse to Catholic kings and princes. Still, I know that this law is not put rigidly into force, and that the Catholics do in fact exercise the rights of their religion without hindrance or persecution, and above all that there is no violent ill-will between the people of the two religions. Would it were so here. Were it not that you are going to ride with my good friend here, I would have said a few words to you, praying you to remember that you are not fighting for worldly credit and honor, but for a holy cause, and it behooves you to bear yourselves gravely and seriously. But no such advice is needed to those who come under his influence. Leaving the Count de la Nuit in conversation with the Admiral, Francois and Philip made their way to the hall, where the tables were laid so that all who came, at whatever hour, could at once obtain food. Their own servants, who were established in the castle, waited upon them. "'I think that lackey of yours will turn out a very useful fellow, Philip,' Francois said as they left the hall. "'He is quick and willing, and he turned out our dinner yesterday in good fashion. It was certainly far better cooked than it had been by Charles the day before.' I fancy Paris has done a good deal of cooking in the open air, Philip said, and we shall find that he is capable of turning out toothsome dishes from very scanty materials. I am very glad to hear it, for though I am ready to eat horseflesh if necessary, I see not why, because we happen to be at war, 
one should have to spoil one's teeth by gnawing at meat as hard as leather. Soldiers are generally bad cooks. They are in too much haste to get their food at the end of a long day's work to waste much time with the cooking. Ah, here comes La Nuit again. Will you order your troop to be again in the saddle at five o'clock in the morning, de Liville, the Count said. I start with a party of two hundred at that hour. There will be my own men and yours. The rest will be gentlemen and their personal retainers. <sighs> I wish it would have been three hours later, Francois said as the Count left them and moved away, giving similar orders to the other gentlemen. I own I hate moving before it is light. There is nothing ruffles the temper so much as getting up in the dark, fumbling with your buckles and straps, and finding everyone else just as surly and cross as you feel yourself. It was considered a necessary part of my training that I should turn out and exercise myself all times of the night. It was the part of my exercises that I hated the most. Philip laughed. It will not make much difference here, Francois. I don't like getting out of a warm bed myself on a dark winter's morning. But as there will be certainly no undressing tonight, and we shall merely have to get up and shake the straw off of us, it will not much matter. By half-past five it will be beginning to get light. At any rate, we should not mind it tomorrow, as it will be really our first day of military service. Up to a late hour, fresh arrivals continued to pour in, and the cooks and servants of the castle were kept hard at work administering to the wants of the hungry and tired men. There was no regular set meal, each man feeding as he was disposed. After it became dark, all the gentlemen of family gathered in the upper part of the great hall, and there sat talking by the light of the torches till nine. Then the admiral, with a few of the nobles who had been in consultation with him, joined them, and a quarter of an hour later a pastor arrived and prayers were read. Then a number of retainers came in with trusses of straw, which were shaken down thickly beside the walls, and as soon as this was done, all present prepared to lie down. "'The trumpet will sound, gentlemen,' Francois de la Nuit said in a loud voice, "'at half past four. But this will only concern those who, as it has already been arranged, will ride with me. The rest will set out with the admiral at seven. I pray each of you who go with me to bid a servant cut off a goodly portion of bread and meat to take along with him, and to place a flask or two of wine in his saddlebags, for our ride will be a long one, and we are not likely to be able to obtain refreshments on our way. I should have thought, Francois said, as he lay down on the straw by Philip's side, that we should have passed through plenty of places where we could obtain food. Whether we go direct to Paris, or by the road by Lagny, we pass through Namur and Melun. These places may not open their gates to us, Francois, and in that case probably we should have to go through Montereau and Rossoy, and it may be considered that those who have already gone through to join Condé may have pretty well stripped both places of provisions. The trumpet sounded at half-past four. The torches were at once relighted by the servants, and the gentlemen belonging to La Nuit's party rose, and their servants assisted them to buckle on their armor. They gave them instructions as to taking some food with them, and prepared for the journey by an attack on some cold joints that had been placed on a table at the lower end of the hall. There was a scene of bustle and confusion in the courtyard, as the horses were brought up by the retainers. The admiral himself was there to see the party off, and as they mounted, each issued out and joined the men drawn up outside. Before starting, the minister, according to Huguenot custom, held a short service, and then with a salute to the admiral, La Nuit took his place at their head and rode away. With him went some twenty or thirty gentlemen, behind whom were their body servants, after these some fifty men-at-arms, and the troops of La Nuit and Laville. 
As soon as they were off, La Nuit rang in his horse so as to ride in the midst of his friends, and chatted gaily with them as they went along. An hour and a half's brisk riding took them to Montargis. Instead of keeping straight on, as most of those present expected, the two men who were riding a short distance in advance of the column turned sharp off to the left in the middle of the town. "'I am going to give you a surprise, gentlemen,' Gila Nui said with a smile. "'I will tell you what it is when we are once outside the place.' "'I suppose,' one of the gentlemen from the province, who was riding next to Philip, said, "'we are going to strike the main road from Orléans north, to ride through Entempe, and take post between Versailles and Paris, on the south side of the river, while the prince and following belugger the place on the north. "'It is a bold plan thus to divide our forces.' but I suppose the admiral's party will follow us, and by taking post on the south side of the river we shall straighten Paris for provisions. Gentlemen, the count said, when they had issued from the streets of Montargis, I can now tell you the mission which the admiral has done me the honour to confide to me. It was thought best to keep the matter an absolute secret until we were fairly on our way, because, although we hope and believe that there is not a man in Chatillon who is not to be trusted, there may possibly be a spy for the Guises there and it would have been wrong to run the risk of betrayal. Well, my friends, our object is the capture of Orléans. An exclamation of surprise broke from many of his hearers. It seems a bold enterprise to undertake with but a little over two hundred men, La Noe went on with a smile. But we have friends there. D'Angelo has been for the last ten days in communication with one of them. We may, of course, expect to meet with a stout resistance, but with the advantage of a surprise, and with so many gallant gentlemen with me, I have no shadow of fear as to the result. I need not point out to you how important its possession will be to us. It will keep open a road to the south, will afford a rallying place for all our friends in this part of France, and the news of its capture will give immense encouragement to our co-religionists throughout the country. Besides, it will counterbalance the failure to seize the court, and will serve as an example to others to attempt to obtain possession of strong places. We shall ride at an easy pace today. The distance is long, and the country hilly. We could not hope to arrive there until too late to finish our work before dark. Moreover, most of our horses have already had very hard work during the past few days. We have started early, in order that we may have a halt of four hours in the middle of the day. We are to be met tonight by our friend, the master of Greylow, five miles this side of the city. He will tell us what arrangements have been made for facilitating our entrance. This is a glorious undertaking, Philip, is it not? Francois said. Until now I've been thinking how unfortunate we were in being too late to ride with Condé. But now I see what I thought was a loss has turned out a gain. You do not think Condé will be able to do anything against Paris? Philip asked. Certainly not at present. What can some fifteen hundred horsemen and as many infantry, and he will have no more force than that for another three or four days, do against Paris with its walls and its armed population, and the Guises and their friends and retainers, to say nothing of the six thousand Swiss. If our leaders thought they were going to fight at once, they would hardly have sent two hundred good troops off in another direction. I expect we shall have plenty of time to get through this and other expeditions, and then to join the prince in front of Paris before any serious fighting takes place. Do you know how far it is across the hills to Orléans? Philip asked the gentleman next to him on the other side. It is over fifty miles, but how much more I do not know. I am a native of the province, but I have never travelled along this road, which can be but little used. East of Montargis the traffic goes by the great road, through Melu to Paris, 
while the traffic of Orléans, of course, goes north through Etampé. They rode on until noon, and then dismounted by a stream, watered and fed the horses, partook of a meal from the contents of their saddlebags, and then rested for four hours to recruit the strength of their horses. The soldiers mostly stretched themselves on the sward and slept. A few of the gentlemen did the same, but most of them sat chatting in groups, discussing the enterprise upon which they were engaged. Francois and Philip went among their men with Captain Montpace, inspected the horses, examined their shoes, saw that fresh nails were put in where required, chatting with the men as they did so. "'I felt sure we would not be long before we were engaged on some stirring business,' the captain said. "'The Count de la Nuit is not one to let the grass grow under his feet. I saw much of him in the last campaign, and the Count, your father, had a very high opinion of his military abilities.' At first he was looked upon somewhat doubtfully in our camp, seeing that he did not keep a long face, but was ready with a jest and a laugh with high and low, and that he did not affect the soberness of costume favored by our party. But that soon passed off when it was seen how zealous he was in the cause, how ready to share in any dangerous business, while he set an example to all by the cheerfulness with which he bore fatigue and hardship. Next to the admiral himself and his brother, D'Andelo, there was no officer more highly thought of by the troops. This is certainly a bold enterprise that he has undertaken now, if it be true what I have heard since we halted, that we are going to make a dash at Orléans. It is a big city for some two hundred men to capture, even though no doubt we have numbers of friends within the walls. All the more glory and credit to us, Montpace, Francois said gaily. Why, the news that Orléans is captured will send a thrill through France, and will everywhere encourage our friends to rise against our oppressors. We are sure to take them by surprise. But they will believe that all the Huguenots in this part of France are hastening to join the prince before Paris. At four o'clock the party got in motion again, and an hour after dark entered a little village among the hills about five miles north of the town. De La Noue at once placed a cordon of sentries, with orders that neither man, woman, nor child was to be allowed to leave it. Orders were issued to the startled peasants that all were to keep within their doors at the peril of their lives. The horses were picketed in the street, and the soldiers stowed in barns. Trusses of straw were strewn round a fire for La Nuit and the gentlemen who followed him. At eight o'clock, two vedettes, thrown forward some distance along the road, rode in with a horseman. It was the master of Grillot, who, as he rode up to the fire, was heartily greeted by the Count. "'I am glad to find you here, Count,' he said. "'I knew you to be a man of your word. But in warfare things often occur to upset the best calculations.' "'Is everything going on well at Orléans?' De la Nuit asked. Everything. I have made all my arrangements. A party of five and twenty men I can depend on will tomorrow morning at seven o'clock gather near the gate the side of the town. They will come up in twos and threes, and just as the guard are occupied in unbarring the gate, they will fall upon them. The guard is fifteen strong, and as they will be taken by surprise, they will be able to offer but a faint resistance. Of course, you with your troop will be lying in readiness near. As soon as they have taken possession of the gateway, the party will issue out and wave a white flag as a signal to you that all is clear. And you will be in before the news that the gateway has been seized can spread. After that, you will know what to do. In addition to the men who are to carry out the enterprise, you will shortly be joined by many others. Word has been sent round to our partisans that they may speedily expect deliverance, and bidding them to be prepared whenever they are called upon to take up their arms and join those who come to free them. A large number of the townsfolk are secretly either wholly with us, or well disposed towards us, and although some will doubtless take up arms on the other side, 
I think that with the advantage of the surprise, and with such assistance as our party can give you, there is every chance of bringing the enterprise to a successful issue. One of our friends, who has a residence within a bowshot of the gates, has arranged with me that your troop, arriving there before daylight, shall at once enter his grounds, where they will be concealed from the sight of any country people going toward the city. From the upper windows the signal can be seen, and if you are mounted and ready, you can be there in three or four minutes, and it will take longer than that before the alarm can spread, and the Catholics must are strongly enough to recapture the gate. Admirably arranged, the Count said warmly. With a plan so well laid, our scheme can hardly fail of success. If we only do our part as well as you have done yours, Orléans is as good as one. Now, gentlemen, I advise you to toss off one more goblet of wine, and then to wrap yourselves up in your cloaks for a few hours' sleep. We must be in the saddle soon after four, so as to be off the road by five. At that hour, the troop led by the master of Grelot turned in at the gate of the chateau. The owner was awaiting them, and gave them a cordial welcome. The men were ordered to dismount and stand by their horses, while the leaders followed their host into the house, where a repast had been laid for them, while some servitors took out baskets of bread and flagons of wine to the troopers. At half-past six, groups of countrymen were seen making their way along the road towards the gate, and a quarter of an hour later the troop mounted and formed up in readiness to issue out, as soon as the signal was given, their host placing himself at an upper window whence he could obtain a view of the city gate. It was just seven when he called out, The gate is opening, and immediately afterwards. They have begun the work. The country people outside are running away in panic. Ah, oh, there is the white flag. Two servitors at the gate of the chateau threw it open, and headed by La Noue and the gentlemen of the party, they issued out and galloped down the road at full speed. As they approached the gate, some men ran out waving their caps and swords. Well done, La Noue exclaimed as he rode up. Now, scatter and call out all our friends to aid us in the capture. The troop had been already divided into four parties, each led by gentlemen familiar with the town. Francois and Philip, with the men from La Ville, formed the party led by the Count himself. The news of the tumult at the gate had spread, and just as they reached the marketplace, a body of horsemen equal in strength to their own rode towards them. For God and the religion, Lenoui shouted as he led the charge. Ignorant of the strength of their assailants, and having mounted in haste at the first alarm, the opposing band hesitated, and before they could set their horses into a gallop, the Huguenots were upon them. The impetus of the charge was irresistible. Men and horses rolled over, while those in the rear turned and rode away, and the combat was over before scarce a blow had been struck. A party of infantry hastening up were next encountered. These offered a more stubborn resistance, when another of the Huguenot parties rode into the square. At the sound of the conflict, the upper windows of the house were opened, and the citizens looked out in alarm at the struggle. But the Catholics, having neither orders nor plan, dared not venture out, while the Huguenots mustered rapidly with arms in their hands, and rendered valuable assistance to the horsemen in attacking and putting to flight the parties of Catholic horse and foot as they hurriedly came up. In an hour all resistance has ceased, and Orléans was taken. The Count at once issued a proclamation to the citizens assuring all peaceable persons of protection, and guaranteeing to the citizens immunity from all interference with personal property, and the right of full exercise of their religion. The charge of the gates was given over to the Huguenot citizens. Parties of horse were told off to patrol the streets to see that the order was preserved, and to arrest any using threats or violence to the citizens, and in a very few hours the town resumed its usual appearance. Now that all fear of persecution was at an end, large numbers of the citizens, who had hitherto concealed their leanings towards the new religion, and La Noue saw with satisfaction 
that the town could be safely left to the keeping of the Huguenot adherents, with the assistance only of a few men to act as leaders. These he selected from the gentlemen of the province who had come with him, and as soon as these had entered upon their duties, he felt free to turn his attention elsewhere. Two days were spent in appointing a council of the leading citizens, the Huguenots, of course, being in the majority. To them was entrusted the management of the affairs of the town and the maintenance of order. The young nobleman, appointed as governor, was to have entire charge of military matters. All Huguenots capable of bearing arms were to be formed up in companies, each of which was to appoint its own officers. They were to practice military exercises, to have charge of the gates and walls, and to be prepared to defend them in case a hostile force should lay siege to the town. Three of the nobles were appointed to see to the victualling of the town, and all citizens were called upon to contribute a sum according to their means for this purpose. A few old soldiers were left to drill the new levies, to see that the walls were placed in a thorough condition of defense, and above all to aid the leaders in suppressing any attempt at the ill-treatment of Catholics, or the desecration of their churches by the Huguenot portion of the populace. When all arrangements were made for the peace and safety of the town, De La Nuit dispatched most of the gentlemen with him and their followers to join the Prince of Condé before Paris, retaining only his cousin Francois, Philip, the troop from Laville, and his own band of forty men-at-arms. End of chapter 5. Recorded February 2008.